Good evening. I hope you've had a wonderful day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. My name is Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a great night's sleep with some old familiar stories that you haven't heard in a while. Links to every story can be found in the show notes at our website, bedtimewithbvj.com. Tonight's story, The Nest Egg, by W.W. Jacobs. Artfulness, said the night watchman, smoking placidly, is a gift, but it don't pay always. I've met some artful ones in my time, plenty of them, but I can't truthfully say is how any of them was the better for meeting me. He rose slowly from the packing case on which he had been sitting and stamping down the point of a rusty nail with his heel, resumed his seat, remarking that he had endured it for some time under the impression that it was only a splinter. I've surprised more than one in my time, continued slowly. When I met one of these, er, artful ones, I used, first of all, to pretend to be more stupid than what I really am. He stopped and stared fixedly. More stupid than I looked, he said. He stopped again. More stupid than what they thought I looked, he said, speaking with marked deliberation. And I'd let him go on and on until I thought I'd had had about enough. And then turn round on him. Nobody ever got the better of me except my wife. And that was only before we was married. Two nights afterwards, she found a fish hook in my trouser pocket, and after that, I could have left and old gold there if I'd have had it. It's fault what some people called the honeymoon, but it paid in the long run. One of the worst things a man can do is take up artfulness all of a sudden. I never knew it to answer yet, and I can tell you of a case that'll prove my words true. It's some years ago now, and the chap it happened to is a young man, shipmate of mine, named Charlie Tagg. Very steady young chap he was. Too steady for most of them. That's how it was me and I got to be such pals. He'd been saving up for years to get married, and all the advice we could give him didn't have any effect. He saved up nearly every penny of his money and gave it to his gal to keep for him. And the time I'm speaking of... She'd got 72 pounds of his and 17 and 6 of her own to set up housekeeping with. Then a thing happened that I've known to happen to Salem in a four. But Sydney's got Sally on another gal and started walking out with her. And before he knew what we was about, he'd promised to marry her too. Sydney and London been a long way from each other was in his favor. But the thing that troubled him was how to get that 72 pounds out of Emma Cook, his London gal, so as he could marry the other with it. It worried him all the way home. By the time we got into the London River, his head was all in a maze with it. Emma Cook had got it all saved up in the bank to take a little shop with when they got spliced and how to get it, he could not think. He went straight off to Poplar, where she lived, as soon as the ship was berthed. He walked all the way so as to have more time for thinking. 
But what with bumping into two old gentlemen with bad tempers and, and being nearly run over by a cabman with a white horse and red whiskers, you got to the house without having thought of anything. They were just finishing their tea as he got there, and they all seemed so pleased to see him that it made it worse than ever for him. Mrs. Cook, who had pretty near finished, gave him her own cup to drink out of and, and said that she had dreamt of him the night before last, and old Cook said that he had got so good-looking she shouldn't have known him. I should have passed him in the street, he says. I had never saw such an alteration. They'll be a nice-looking couple, says his wife, looking at a young chap named George Smith that had been sitting next to Emma. Charlie Tag filled his mouth with bread and butter and wondered how he was to begin. He squeezed Emma's hand just for the sake of keeping up appearances, and all the time he was thinking of the other guy waiting for him thousands of miles away. "'You've come home just in the nick of time,' says old cook. "'If you'd done it on purpose, you couldn't have arranged it better.' "'Somebody's birthday,' says Charlie, trying to smile. Old cook shook his head. "'Though mine is next Wednesday,' he says, "'and thank you for thinking of it. "'No, you're just in time for the biggest bargain in the Chandlery line "'that anybody ever had a chance of. "'If you hadn't that come back, "'we should have had to have done it without you. Eighty pounds,' says Miss Cook, smiling at Charlie. "'With the money Emma's got saved and your wages this trip, you'll have plenty. "'You must come round out of tea and have a look at it. "'Little place not half a mile from here,' says old Cook.' Properly worked up the way Emma'll do it, it'll be a little fortune. I wish I'd had a chance like that in my young time. He sat shaking his head to think what he'd lost, and Charlie Tagg sat staring at him and wondering what he was to do. My idea is for Charlie to go for a few more voyages after they're married while Emma works up the business, says Mrs. Cook. She'll be all right with young Bill and Sarah and uh, help her and keep her company while he's away. We'll see if she ain't lonely, says George Smith, turning to Charlie. Charlie Tag gave a bit of a cough and said it wanted considering. He said it was no good doing things in a hurry and repenting of them all the rest of your life. And he said he'd been given to understand that Chandler wasn't what it had been. And some of the cleverest people knew thought that it would be worse before it was better. By the time he finished, they were all looking at him as though they couldn't believe their ears. You just step round and have a look at the place, says old cook. If that don't make you alter your tune, call me a sinner. Charlie Tag felt as though it could have called him a lot worse things than that. Took up his hat and Mrs. Cook and Emma got their bonnets on and they went round. I don't think much of it for 80 pounds, says Charlie, beginning his artfulness as they came near a big shop with plate glass and a double front. Eh? says old cook, staring at him. Why, that ain't the place. You wouldn't get that for eight hundred. Well, I don't think much of it, says Charlie. If it's worse than that, I can't look at it. I can't indeed. You ain't been drinking, Charlie, says old cook in a puzzled voice. Certainly not, says Charlie. He was pleased to see how anxious they all looked, and when they did come to the shop, set up a laugh that old cook had chilled the marrow in his bones. He stood looking in a helpless sort of way at his wife and Emma, and then at last he says, There it is, and at a fair bargain at the price. I suppose you ain't been drinking, says Charlie. What's the matter with it, says Mrs. Cook, flaring up. 
Come inside and look at it, says Emma, taking hold of his arm. Not me, says Charlie, hanging back. I wouldn't take it as a gift. He stood there on the curbstone, and all he could do, he wouldn't budge. He said it was a bad road and a little shop, and it got a look about it he didn't like. They walked back home like a funeral procession, and Emma had to keep whispering to her mother all the way. I don't know what Charlie does want, I'm sure, says Mrs. Cook, taking off her bonnet as soon as she got indoors and pitching it on the chair he was just going to sit down on. It's so awkward, says old Cook, rubbing his head. Fact is, Charlie, we pretty near gave him to understand as we'd buy it. It's as good as settled, says Mrs. Cook, trembling all over with temper. They won't settle till they get the money, says Charlie. You may make your mind easy about it. Emma's drawn it all out of the bank ready, says old Cook eager-like. Charlie felt hot and cold all over. I'd better take care of it, he says in a trembling voice. You might be robbed. So might you be, says Mrs. Cook. Don't you worry. It's in a safe place. Sailormen are always being robbed, says George Smith, who had been helping young Bill with his sums while he had gone to look at the shop. There's more sailormen robbed than all the rest put together. They won't rob Charlie, says Mrs. Cook, pressing her lips together. I'll take care of that, Charlie tried to laugh, but it made such a wild noise that young Bill made a large blot on his exercise book, and old Cook, who was lighting his pipe, burnt his fingers through not looking what he was doing. You see, says Charlie, if I was robbed, which ain't at all likely, it'd only be me losing my own money. But if you were robbed of it, you'd never forgive yourselves. I dare say I should get over it, said Mrs. Cook, sniffling. I'd never try at all events. Charlie started to laugh again. An old cook, who had struck another match, blew it out and waited till he'd finished. The whole truth is, says Charlie, looking round, I've got something better to do with the money. I got a chance offered me that'll make me able to double it before you know where you are. Not a whore I know where I am, says Mrs. Cook, with a laugh that was worse than Charlie's. The chance of a lifetime, says Charlie, trying to keep his temper. I can't tell you what it is because I've promised to keep it a secret for a time. You'll be surprised when I do tell you. If I wait till then till I'm surprised says Mrs. Cook. I shall have to wait a long time. My advice to you is to take that shop and have done with it. Charlie sat there arguing all the evening, but it was no good. And the idea of them people sitting there refusing to let him have his own money pretty near sent him crazy. It was all he could do to kiss Emma goodnight. And I couldn't have helped slamming the front door if he'd been paid for it. The only comfort he had got left was the Sydney gal's photograph, and he took that out and looked at it under nearly every lamppost he passed. He went round the next night and had another try to get his money, but it was no use. And all the good he'd done was to make Mrs. Cook in such a temper that she had to go to bed before he had our finished. It was no good talking to old Cook and Emma, because they daren't do anything without her. And it was no good calling things up the stairs, because she didn't answer. Three nights running, Mrs. Cook went off to bed before eight o'clock, for fear she should say something to him as she'd be sorry for her afterwards. And for three nights, Charlie made himself so disagreeable that Emma told him plain the sooner it went back to sea again, the better she should like it. 
The only one who seemed to enjoy it was George Smith, and he used to bring out bits of newspapers and read to him, showing how silly people were done out of their money. On the fourth night, Charlie dropped it and made himself so amiable that Mrs. Cook stayed up and made him a Welsh rabbit for supper and made him drink two glasses of beer instead of one, while old Cook sat and drank three glasses of water just out of temper and showed that he didn't mind. When she started on the Chandler's shop again, Charlie said he'd think it over, and when he went away, Mrs. Cook called him her sailor boy and wished him pleasant dreams. But Charlie Tag had got better things to do than to dream, and he sat up in bed off the night thinking out a new plan. And he sat up in bed off the night thinking out a new plan he thought of to get that money. When he did fall asleep at last, he dreamt of taking a little farm in Australia and riding about on horseback with the Sydney gal watching his men at work. In the morning, he went and hunted up a shipmate of his, a young fellow named Jack Bates. Jack was one of these air chaps, nobody's enemy but their own, as the saying is, a good-hearted, free-handed chap as you could wish to see. Everybody liked him, and the ship's cat loved him. He'd have sold the shirt off his back to oblige a pal, and three times in one week he got his face scratched for trying to prevent husbands knocking their wives about. Charlie Tag went to him, because he was the only man he could trust. And for over half an hour, he was telling Jack Bates all his troubles. And at last, as a great favor, he let him see the Sydney gal's photograph and told him that all that pure gal's future happiness pended on him. I'll step around tonight and rob him of that 72 pounds, says Jack. It's your money, and you've a right to it. Charlie shook his head. That wouldn't do, he says. Besides, I don't know where they keep it. No, I've got a better plan than that. Come round to the crooked billet so we can talk it over in peace and quiet. He stood Jack three or four off pints before he told him his plan, and Jack was so pleased with it that he wanted to start at once. But Charlie persuaded him to wait. Don't you spare me mind out of friendship, says Charlie, because the blacker you paint me, the better I shall like it. You trust me, mate, says Jack Bates. If I don't get that 72 pounds for you, you may call me a Dutchman. Why, it's fair robbery, I call it, sticking to your money like that. They spent the rest of the day together, and when evening came, Charlie went off to the cooks. Emma had half expected they were going to a theater that night, but Charlie said he wasn't feeling the thing, and he sat there so quiet and miserable they didn't know what to make of him. Have you got any trouble on your mind, Charlie, says Mrs. Cook, or is it the toothache? It ain't the toothache, says Charlie. He sat there pulling a long face and staring at the floor. But all Mrs. Cook and Emma could do, he wouldn't tell him what was the matter with him. He said he didn't want to worry other people with his troubles. Let everybody bear their own. That was his motto. Even when George Smith offered to go to the theater with Emma instead of him, he didn't fire up. And if it hadn't been for Mrs. Cook, George wouldn't have been sorry that he spoke. Theaters ain't for me, says Charlie with a groan. I'm more likely to go to Gaul, as far as I can see, than a theater. Mrs. Cook and Emma both screamed, and Sarah Ann did her first hysterics, and very well, too, considering she had just only turned 15. Gaul, says old Cook, as soon as they had quieted Sarah Ann with a bowl of cold water that young Bill had the presence of mind to go and fetch. Gaul, what for? You wouldn't believe if I was to tell you, says Charlie, getting up to go. And besides, I don't want any of you to think as how I am worse than what I am. 
He shook his cat at them sorrowful-like, and before they could stop him, he had gone. Old Cook shouted after him, but it was no use, and the others were running into the scullery to fill the bowl again for Emma. Mrs. Cook went round to his lodgings next morning and found that it was out. They began to fancy all sorts of things then, but Charlie turned up again that evening more miserable than ever. I went round to see you this morning, says Mrs. Cook, but you aren't at home. I never am, Arlie, says Charlie. I can't be. It ain't safe. Why not? says Mrs. Cook, fidgeting. If I was to tell you, you'd lose your good opinion of me, says Charlie. It wouldn't be much to lose, says Mrs. Cook, firing up. Charlie didn't answer her. When he did speak, he spoke to the old man. And he was so downhearted that he gave him the chills almost. He hardly took any notice of Emma, and when Mrs. Cook spoke about the shop again, said that Chandler's shops were for happy people, not for him. By the time they sat down to supper, they were nearly all as miserable as Charlie himself. From words he let drop, they all seemed to have the idea that the police was after him. And Mrs. Cook was just asking him for what she called the third and last time. But what was more likely the hundred and third? What he'd done? When there was a knock at the front door, so loud and so sudden, that old Cook and young Bill both cut their mouths at the same time. Anybody hear the name of Emma Cook? Says a man's voice when young Bill opened the door. She's inside, says the boy. And the next moment, Jack Bates followed him into the room and then fell back with a start and he saw Charlie Tag. Oh, are you, are, are you? He says, looking at him very black. What's the matter? Says Mrs. Cook very sharp. I didn't expect to have the pleasure of seeing you here, my lad, says Jack, still staring at Charlie and twisting his face up into awful scowls. Which is Emma Cook? Miss Cook is my name, says Emma, very sharp. What do you want? Very good, says Jack Bates, looking at Charlie again. Then perhaps you'll do me the kindness of telling that lie yours again before this young lady. It's the truth, says Charlie, looking down at his plate. If somebody don't tell me what this is all about in two minutes, I shall do something desperate, says Mrs. Cook, getting up. This here a man, says Jack Bates, pointing at Charlie owes me 75 pounds and won't pay. When I ask him for it, he says the party he's keeping company with by the M of Emma Cook has got it, and he can't get it. So she has, says Charlie, without looking up. What does she owe you the money for, says Mrs. Cook? Because I lent it to him, says Jack. Lent it? What for, says Mrs. Cook? Because I was a fool, I suppose, says Jack Bates. A good-natured fool. Anyway, I'm sick and tired of asking for it, and if I don't get it tonight, I'm going to see the police about it. He sat down in a chair with his hat cocked over one eye, and they all sat staring at him as though they didn't know what to say next. So this is what you meant when you said you'd got the chance of a lifetime, is it? Says Mrs. Cook to Charlie. This is what you wanted it for, is it? What did you borrow all that money for? Spend, says Charlie in a sulky voice. Spend, says Mrs. Cook with a scream. What in? Drinking cards mostly, says Jack Bates, remembering what Charlie had told him about blackening his character. You might have heard a pin drop at most. And Charlie sat there without saying a word. Charlie's been led away, says Mrs. Cook, looking hard at Jack Bates. I suppose you lent the money to win it back from him at cards, didn't you? And gave him too much liquor first, says old cook. 
I've heard of your kind. If Charlie takes my advice, he won't pay you a farthing. I should let you do your worst if I wasn't. That's what I would do. You got a low face. A nasty, ugly, low face. One of the worst I ever see, says Mrs. Cook. It looks as though it might have been out of the police news. However could you have trusted a man with a face like that, Charlie, says old Cook. Come away from him, Bill. I don't like such a chap in the room. Jack Bates began to feel very awkward. They was all glaring at him as though they could eat him. And he wasn't used to such treatment. And as a matter of fact, he got a very good-hearted face. You go out of that door, says old Cook, pointing to it. Go and do your worst. You won't get any money here. Stop a minute, says Emma. And before they could stop her, she ran upstairs. Mrs. Cook went harder, and high words were heard up in the bedroom, but by and by Emma came down holding her head very high and looking at Jack Bates as though he was dirt. How am I to know Charlie owes you this money, she says. Jack Bates turned very red, and Arter fumbling on his pockets, took out a dozen dirty bits of paper, which Charlie had given him as IOUs. Emma read them all, and then she threw a little parcel on the table. There's your money, she says. Take it and go. Mrs. Cook and her father began to call out, but it was no good. There's 72 pounds there, says Emma, who was very pale. And there's a ring you can have to help make up the rest. And she drew Charlie's ring off and threw it on the table. I'm done with him for good, she says. What a look at her mother. Jack Bates took up the money and the ring and stood there looking at her and trying to think what to say. He'd always been on Carmen partial to the sex. And it did seem hard to stand there and take all that on account of Charlie Tag. I only wanted my own, he says at last, shuffling about the floor. Well, you've got it, says Mrs. Cook. Now you can go. You're poisoning the air of my front parlor, says old Cook, opening the window a little at the top. Perhaps I ain't so bad as you think I am, says Jack Bates, still looking at Emma. And with that, he walked over to Charlie and dumped down the money on the table in front of him. Take it, he says. Don't borrow any more. I make you a free gift of it. Perhaps my heart ain't as black as my face, he says, turning to Mrs. Cook. They were all so surprised at first that they couldn't speak. But old Cook smiled at him and put the window up again. And Charlie tags sat there off mad with temper, looking as though he could eat Jack Bates without any salt, as the saying is. I can't take it, he says at last with a stammer. Can't take it? Why not, says old Cook, staring. This gentleman has given it to you, a free gift, says Mrs. Cook, smiling at Jack very sweet. I can't take it, says Charlie, winking at Jack to take the money up and give it to him quiet as arranged. I have my pride. So have I, says Jack. Are you going to take it? Charlie gave another look. No, he says. I can't take a favor. I borrowed the money and I'll pay it back. Very good, says Jack, taking it up. It's my money, ain't it? Yes, says Charlie, taking no notice of Mrs. Cook and her husband, and was both talking to him at once and trying to persuade him to alter his mind. Then I give it to Miss Emma Cook, says Jack Bates, putting it into her hands. Good night, everybody, and good luck. He slammed the front door behind him, and they heard him go off down the road as if it was going for fire engines. Charlie sat there a moment, struck all of a heap, and then he jumped up and dashed after him. 
He just saw him disappear around a corner and he didn't see him again for a couple of years afterwards. By which time, the Sydney gal had had three or four young men out of him. And Emma, who had changed her name to Smith, was doing one of the best businesses in the Chandra line in Poplar. Ha ha ha! Oh, they say you can't outstep a high stepper, but you can't outfox an old fox. But you can't outfox an old fox. How about that? If you're just open and honest with people and you keep the lines of communication open, maybe you wouldn't have to go through such a gigantic ruse that will blow up in your face. Spectacularly. And when your face is blown, and when stuff is blown up in your face spectacularly, you need soap. Maybe a shave. Why don't you go to Harry's and get some of their razors? Enter BVJ in a promo code and it'll do absolutely nothing because this is not a sponsored read. I would like to tell you to give us a review on iTunes. iTunes loves reviews, and it helps other people find the podcast. And you can send me stories to read as well. Email me, bigvoicejay at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. (laughs) 